So let's turn to the text found in 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be looking at simply two verses. We're going to be reading two verses, but we're going to be looking only at uh, verses 6 and 7, but particular verse, particularly verse 6. So last week we looked at verse 5, clothing yourselves with humility toward one another. And today we're going to be looking at verse 6 and verse 7. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, having cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares about you. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We thank you for this precious portion of your word. What a theme. What a subject. We can never do it full justice. I can't. So I ask for grace. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight at this moment. Amen. Please be seated. So last week we noticed how True humility is found only in God. So this is the theme as we continue with our series in 1 Peter. Uh, We are coming to the close of this letter and how wonderful that we can deal with this subject. It is a vast subject. We cannot plummet the topic in its entirety. In God, as I said, we find true humility. And with the incarnation... God's humility became manifest, and of course, it found its climax in the death of Christ. No God has ever humbled himself as the God of heaven. No God. In the Trinity, we witness both unspeakable glory and incomprehensible humility. There is boundless power wrapped with mystifying humility. It's, it's beyond us. We can't understand it. The gods of men are completely full of themselves. All gods are nothing more than mere projections of man's mind, man's fallen mind. The gods we admire are powerful, fast, strong, beautiful, gifted, rich, bright, Perfect. Since we cannot have these traits in ourselves on a permanent basis, or for that matter, in a perfect manner, we create or choose gods that manifest these attributes. Subconsciously, we're saying to ourselves, if we cannot be powerful, fast, strong, bright, beautiful, perfect, our gods will be. And since the fall, man continues to boast in his gods instead of boasting in the true God. Consider our obsession with celebrities in whichever field that may be, sports, entertainment, music, finance, medicine. The celebrities we drool over 
and speak about often and write about and tweet about and put on Facebook about, whatever that may be, are the gods of our day. They're beautiful, they're strong, they're bright, they're gifted, they're popular, they're wealthy, they're elitists, and they are unreachable. These gods do not know you. You think that you know them, but you don't. They don't know you from a hole in the wall. They have what we cannot have, and so we admire them. Or shall I correctly say we worship them? For that is what we do. We worship them. We praise them. We speak about them. We write about them. We quickly find want to find out what's going on in their lives, who they're marrying, who are their children, what are they doing, how do their houses look like. We speak of them often. So we are no different than the people of Greece, in ancient Greece, who spoke of their gods in glowing terms. They revered them as we revere our gods. They spoke of them reverently as we speak of our celebrities reverently. I've spoken once negatively about one celebrity and the guy chewed my head off. They were, they were in those days in ancient Greece, heartbroken if anything happened to their gods, just as we are if anything should happen to our favorite celebrity. Our celebrities ooze with pride as the gods of Greek mythology oozed with pride. You see, we're no different. We have modern gadgets, but we're no different. Not long ago, a well-known soccer player, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, I probably butchered his name, was interviewed by Jimmy Kimmel. During the course of the interview, Zlatan said, my self-confidence is very high. To which Jimmy retorted, yes, we noticed that. Zlatan is known amongst sports personalities who already have a big ego as the cockiest athlete in the world. Zlatan was asked who he thought was the best striker in the Premier League. He mentioned Lukaku, Aguero as excellent strikers. Everyone in the audience, including the interviewer, was shocked. They wondered, could it be that Zlatan is acknowledging other soccer players as gifted? The interviewer then interjected, but you said nothing about yourself. He answered, you do not compare lions with humans. <laughs> he sees himself as a lion. Zlatan was also asked, what superpower would you like to possess? I already have them. What do his fans say about Zlatan? They love his cockiness. They love his pride. <laughs> they do. They think it's great. Celebrities are nothing more than mere mortals who are delusional. And those who follow them are equally delusional. The God of heaven alone is truly powerful. We sang about this God because he is the all-powerful. He is the all-glorious. And yet, he is incomprehensibly humble. He's the only one 
worthy of our admiration, of our worship, no one else. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle could not come to terms with a God that is humble. Humility is the trait of humans, they said. So therefore, humility and Godhead, in their minds, were incompatible. I was speaking to someone this week about God, about the Lord Jesus Christ, and his humility. And he said, impossible. God is humble. It's impossible. Humility is the trait of a human. I said, really? You say humility is the trait of a human? Fine. Find me one person on earth, one, who is gifted and humble. Not someone who's down and out, broken, poor, has nothing and humble, but someone who's gifted and humble. Someone who's bright and humble. One person, please. He thought, he thought, and this guy's very gifted, very knowledgeable. He's, a, he's very well read. He thought and thought, and he said, I can't think of one. He just said it's a trait of humans. He was silent. And then I read to him Philippians chapter 2, where it speaks of Christ's humility and how he left his throne. He did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, the kenosis, and came down and became a bondservant and then went to the cross. This is giftedness with humility, power with humility, knowledge with humility, beauty with humility, I said. That's humility. If humans were remotely humble, the first thing they would do is turn back to their creator in repentance. But like Adam, we turn our backs to God and in our stupid pride, we run away from him. And then we sow fig leaves to cover our nakedness. We do the same thing he did. We refuse to acknowledge our rebellion. We refuse to acknowledge our pride. We don't even see it. We blame others for the mess that's in our lives, including God. But in Christ, we have true humility, who alone took the blame of all mankind. Isn't that something? He took the sins. He was so counterculture. And now that's why Peter exhorts believers to clothe themselves in humility. From the moment we wake up to the moment we fall asleep, as Christians we are to clothe ourselves in humility. So what is humility? It means to acknowledge that our resources, our gifts, everything we've received from God, our possessions, everything, our families, whatever we have that has been given to us, to steward, because that's what we are, we're stewards, we are to place them at the disposal of others who are in need. To bless others. We do this not to be noticed, but because it pleases our Lord who did the same for us. And we saw the passage of John 13 when Jesus, who was the glorious Lord, wrapped himself with a towel and washed the feet of the disciples because they needed to be washed. That was a need. Humility is not a self-effacing posture of clasped hands with heads leaning sideways, saying to everybody or conveying the message, I'm nothing, I'm a nobody. 
That's not humility. Humility is acknowledging that we have so many gifts, that we have been blessed beyond measure, and now we're going to serve others. There are people who come to church and say, I want to get this, I want to see in church this, and I want to have this. They have no clue as to what it means to give. The mature Christian who understands that he has been blessed says, I want to serve, I want to give, I want to make myself available. And the elders are the ones who lead this way. They make themselves available. And then everybody else in office lead by serving, by giving of themselves. That's humility. Humility, therefore, is not I'm nothing. It's basically, here's a quote. I think it's a good quote. It's, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Not thinking less of yourself. I'm nothing. I'm a nobody. You know, and just walking around like this. We're nobodies. No. It's thinking less of yourself so that you are concerned about those around you because that is not natural for us. What is natural for humans is to think about themselves, to look after themselves. That's why, again, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely Look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And Christ did that. He embodied this message. He put aside his own interests completely, and he looked out for the interests of sinners by dying on the cross. That's Christ, and that's what we're called to do. That's humility, putting aside your interests and looking out for the interests of others. A mother does that. Mother humbles herself to take care of her child, right? This child wakes her up, is, is disruptive, and the mother gives and gives and gives to her child. That's a hint of humility. In Christ, we have far greater because we are not lovable as a child is to a mother. We are unlovable. We are rebellious. We're proudful. We're sinful. And yet God does the unthinkable and gives up his throne, his privileges, his status for the unworthy sinner. That is humility. It's nowhere to be found. Nowhere. Everybody in Christ alone. Now let's go to the verse 6, part of verse 7 today. What does it mean to humble ourselves? For it says, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is different from Clothe yourself with humility. The clothing of yourself is serve others. Think less of your, for yourself, of your interest, and uh, serve others. But here, it's humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. I've heard people pray, Lord, keep me humble. That is a ridiculous prayer. Really. I mean, <laughs> really? Keep me humble? Now, a correct, a correct prayer is, Lord, humble me. That's a correct prayer. No one should ever pray, keep me humble. So Peter is saying, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, having cast all your anxiety on him because he cares about you. So what does it mean to humble ourselves? Well, in Scripture, we find many passages that can explain this truth. And I could, be, I could stay on this for weeks. In fact, there are several characters 
that illustrate this truth wonderfully. But no one like David, and I'm choosing David on purpose. I will draw your attention to three examples from his life that will help us understand what this expression means. In 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, we don't have the time to read those two chapters, obviously, so I encourage you to read them at home. That's why they're found. Um, they're not. Well, anyways, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. We're all familiar with David's flagrant sin. You may remember the first time reading about David and God's beloved servant, the man after God's own heart, and his adultery with Uriah's wife and how he orchestrated the death of Uriah. And maybe you were shocked the first time you heard about that story, as I was. I was only 12 when I first heard about it. So after stubbornly refusing to repent, in 2 Samuel 12, we read that God sends his servant, Nathan, to confront David about his sin. And this was a dangerous move. Because in those days, what David did was quite common. Powerful men, kings, took people's wives. They got the husband killed, and they just took his wife. That's it. Simple as that. This was... Everybody knew this. That's why no one married a beautiful woman, unless you wanted to die, right? It was quite common. Nathan was putting his life on the line when he walked into the king's court that morning. All his men, his warriors, and all his court advisors, and all the entourage of the court of the royal palace was there, and Nathan walks in. Nathan was a friend of David, and therefore he was welcomed because he was a friend. And that morning, he had received a message from God, and so Nathan speaks to David. And we find in 2 Samuel chapter 12, reading from verse 7, these words. Nathan then said to David, you yourself are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. It is I who anointed you as king over Israel, and it is I who rescued you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, and put your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck and killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife as your wife, and you have slaughtered him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. You can hear a pin drop when Nathan said these words. You never say this. Maybe he should have taken him privately aside and said, Nathan, I, got I have something to tell you. Uh, David, rather. I have something to tell you. He didn't do that. He said this publicly in front of everyone. In those days when you confronted a king, you were thrown into prison, you were killed, or you were tortured. Pick any one of those three. David could have done any of those, and he would have been in his right. He's the king. But this king reacted unlike any other king. Verse 13 says, Then David said to Nathan, in front of everyone, I have sinned against the Lord. Powerful. 
Here's the reason why David was called a man after God's own heart. Not because David was sinless. David was not a great man because he never sinned. He was a great man because he was quick to humble himself under the mighty hand of God. This is not as easy as it looks at all. In fact, it is unbelievably difficult because our pride is so entrenched, it's so part of our DNA that we react when we are confronted with our sin. I've confronted people in private about their sin, and they chose to walk away from the church rather than admitting the wrong. They just said, forget it. I'm never coming back. There have been pastors who I pleaded with to acknowledge their wrongdoing, and to which they responded, no, I will never do that. These are pastors. Yes, we are proudful people. The battle number one that I fight in my life every single day is pride. You have no idea how many times I ask God to forgive me. Over and over I say it. Why was David's response so unique? Because it was. I mean, no king would have said what he said. No king. I can show you instances throughout Scripture where people were confronted and look at Herod, look at Asa. They don't, when you confront a powerful man, they do not say, I've sinned. That's not the response. David had a very unique view when it came to correction. You'll find his view in Psalm 141, verse 5. From these words, we can see how truly great David was. And this is what made him great. This is what made him a man after God's own heart. Not because he never sinned, but because of this. Pay attention. Mark this verse. Memorize it. Read it often. Say it yourselves. This will save your life. Psalm 141, verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. What is David saying here? Everyone in Israel was familiar with the special occasion called the anointing of an office, the anointing of a king, the anointing of a prophet, or the anointing of a priest. It was a very moving and a celebratory moment when chosen men were called to serve in these three, any one of these three offices, and they were anointed with aromatic oil in the presence of everyone. David had been himself anointed as a young man, and later he became king of Israel. Other offices, like the priest, you'll see and read about Aaron's anointing and so forth. And it was a ceremony that lingered long in the memories of the people because once the person was anointed, he would walk home or walk wherever he'd walk, and the aroma, the fragrance was so powerful. And they would remind them, you were anointed. I was there. What a powerful moment that was. May the Lord bless you. It was a moving moment. There was a special moment. And they would look at that individual with admiration that God had chosen him and had anointed him to serve the people of the Lord. David does the unthinkable. David likens this special moment 
with correction. Now, who would do that? No one would. <laughs> no one. You don't look at correction and say, oh my goodness, my mom corrected me. It was just like I put perfume on me. It felt so good. It smelled so beautiful when she let me have it. Right? No one does that. But that's exactly what David says. He compares one with the other. Can you imagine when the people of Israel read this psalm for the first time? They're reading Psalm 141 and they're saying, huh? That's why David was great. Because he would look at correction from a righteous person. Now some people say, oh, he's not righteous. Please, please. Nathan, he could have said many things about Nathan. He knew him intimately. Nathan, how dare you? I know this and this and this about you. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He likens the rebuke and the stern correction to this beautiful moment of being anointed. The Holy Spirit led David to, David to write these words. When your spouse corrects you, when your children say something to you, when someone who is, has, doesn't have the same clout, the same amount of influence, or the same age, he's perhaps uh, younger in age to you, and he corrects you, how do you take it? How do you welcome that? You become defensive? The more powerful you are, the more resources you have to silence that individual. If we receive correction from all, with all humility, we are humbling ourselves under the hand of God. That's what it means. And elders, especially, and anyone who leads in the church, are the ones who are to be examples in this. When someone comes to you and corrects you, points something out to you, they should feel that they can do that, that they can come to you, that they can speak to you. And you are the one that should say, brother, I've sinned. That's why Paul says these words to Timothy about elders. Those who sin, rebuke how? Before the entire church. The elder that sins must be rebuked in front of the church, not privately. I sin, it's before the church. It's never privately. I've had people come to me and share something with me and corrected me. And I made sure it was brought before the church. It had to be brought before the church. If we as elders don't do that, we're not leading. We're not. We're just like the world. Let's keep it hush-hush. Oh, we can't touch the president. We can't touch this person. Oh, forget that. Oh, we can't do that. If someone does not receive correction well, he fails as a leader. He fails. He's not humbling himself before the hand of God. He is not. He's disqualified from service. God opposes such a man. Look at the story of Asa. I don't have the time to read it. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16. Take a note of that. 2 Chronicles 16. And for those of you who don't have a pen, listen to the message on YouTube and you'll hear the uh, reference. 2 Chronicles 16. And you see how God opposed Asa. A man he had blessed and anointed in a remarkable way. But then because of pride, he opposes him. Two, we humble ourselves when we amend our steps. Again, look at 1 Samuel chapter 25. Read the story. It's fascinating. 
Years before David became a king, he was forced to go into hiding with his men. Saul, the king of Israel, wanted David dead. He envied him and hated him and had all his army looking for David, canvassing all of Israel. Find him, kill him, bring him to me. They couldn't, of course, because God took care of him. And wherever he could, David looked for refuge. He would hide in caves. He would hide in forests. He would hide with certain unknown individuals. And, and many times people who were, gave him refuge were killed. The whole town was slaughtered. It was an awful period in David's life. On one such occasion, he ended up in Carmel. It's a northern area of Israel. And there he noticed some men were taking care of sheep, a vast ranch owned by this wealthy man called Nabal. And the servants did their best to keep the tent of the sheep, but there were raiders, there were thieves. And so David had mercy on these men, and he, along with his men, there were a good 300 of them, his men, would protect this vast herd of, and, this, and the shepherds and, and made sure that nothing would befall them. And, and so the thieves and the raiders noticed that there were these guards around the flock of Nabal, and so they said, wow, we can't take anything this year. We have to go somewhere else. And so they left them untouched, and they lost no sheep. There was no loss whatsoever. David did this out of the goodness of his heart. And in those days, it was customary when someone went out of his way and spared you an, an, an enormous loss, you would thank them. And so David, one day, after a long period, after the sheep were sheared and, and uh, the, that, that season was over of, of shearing the flock, David just asks for one thing. He says, can you just give us some spares, some sheep, so we can have some lamb chops tonight with my men? Had he not been around, he would have lost hundreds of sheep. He didn't ask for 100. He asked for maybe 20 sheep, just so that we can have a meal. The answer came back. It was, absolutely not. When David heard that, he was infuriated. You never see David angry as he was in that moment. There is no time in all the history of David recorded in Scripture that David became as angry as he was then. He felt insulted. He looked at his men who had gone out of their way, who went hungry, taking care of the flock and the men of Nabal and this rich rancher in Carmel. And he said, how could this man do such a thing? He couldn't believe it. He tells his men, mount up, every one of you. And they're all angry and they get mount up and says, Everybody dies except the women and children in Nabal's house. Everyone. He was upset. He had lost it. So now they start galloping towards the ranch, towards Nabal's residence. And meanwhile, in Nabal's residence, there was a woman, the wife of Nabal. Her name is Abigail. And she finds out about the disrespectful and humiliating answer that Nabal had given David. And she quickly, realizing the, that moment, how horrible this would turn out, quickly jumps into action. She was a wise woman, and she loads donkeys more than what he had asked for. He, she loads it with olives and grapes and raisins and bread and meat. And she loads these donkeys and sends her men to go with these donkeys towards David, and she herself uh, mounts a donkey and travels behind this 
this is, imagine, you know, imagine a whole bunch of food, car, uh, food trucks, right? That's what it was, like food trucks coming towards you, and you're marching, galloping towards these food trucks. And David looks at all these, this, these donkeys laden with food, and he stops, goes, what is this? And then out comes this woman, and she bows right to the ground before David. What a wise woman. <laughs> Remarkable. This is what she says. She counsels him against going to Nabal's house, her husband, and doing the awful things that he was planning to do. She didn't know what the plans were, but she said, I'm sure he is angry, and he's going to do something wrong. And she just encourages him with her head bowed to the ground. And David stops in his tracks and says this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed. He confesses it. And from avenging myself by my own hand. He had every right, by the way, to do this according to the custom of that day. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, there certainly would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as, such, as much as one male. So David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Now, we look at this and say, wow, it's about time David did something right. But you have to remember, in that day, this was a humbling experience because men did not listen to women at all. Now, she was courageous, and she was wise, and she was used of the Lord to stop his servant. But David acknowledges this. David acknowledges that this woman was sent of God. And he had a choice, either to proceed with his vendetta, avenging himself because of the wrong that he had been given in, in exchange for the good, all the good he had done for Nabal. He could, he could vindicate himself. Or he would have humbled himself, which was unthinkable in those days, Go back to his place. He was living out in the open with his men, and it would have been a double whammy. Sort of been very humiliating for David. He would have become the talk of the town. The men were expecting to go forward. The men were saying, No, David, what he did was, was wrong. It needs to be avenged. But David realizes that God had sent her, that God was speaking through her. When someone stops you in your tracks, when someone tells you what you're planning is not good, I would reconsider. Whether it be your spouse, whether it be someone who is much younger than you, anyone, and tells you and loves you and cares about you. And he didn't know Abigail at all, but she feared God. And she moved wisely and spoke to him and encouraged him what will you do? See, to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God means to amend 
your steps. It means to change direction. It means to go in a different way. And I continue stubbornly ahead. In Proverbs chapter 19, verse 20, it says, Listen to advice and accept discipline so that you may be wise the rest of your days. We need to cultivate a listening attitude. David humbled himself under the mighty hand of God by listening to this woman and changed direction. So it means to acknowledge our sin and to amend our steps. Thirdly, and lastly, we humble ourselves when we accept our situation. 2 Samuel 16, again, I encourage you to read the entire chapter. There we find the story of David. Let's reread the passage found in Peter. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, having cast all your anxiety on him because he cares about you. We went, we were going through quite an ordeal with uh, COVID-19 and uh, I've heard many Christians speak about these issues. I've received emails and texts and there were Christians that prayed against the virus some, I've seen some even curse the virus, and others have denied the presence of a virulent virus. Many different kinds of responses. There is no virus. We believe in God. He is our immunity and all that kind of stuff, you know. But few actually said these words. This is a time to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Have you heard anyone say that? Anyone? That's not the response you hear today. In fact, I was surprised by the reaction of many Christians during the COVID season. Few chose to place their trust in the Lord while continuing to serve, regardless of the circumstances. The majority of people, and I, believe, and I mean Christians, fell into one of these three categories. They were either fearful, angry, angry because things were not going well and things were happening, and they, there was loss of income, angry. And others were arrogant. No, there is no COVID. There is no COVID. God is with us. That's it. Let's go. But humility, little to nothing. Little to nothing. Let me bring you back to a day in David's life. It was a sad day. Absalom, his son, one of his beloved sons, who has a history in and of himself, had methodically and maliciously turned the people of Israel against King David. When David realizes the danger he was in, he quickly plans his escape and the escape of everyone who was with him in the palace. He knew that Absalom would not spare anyone, would eliminate every one of them. David, we see, him, David, we see David rather running on foot along with all those with him. So they were slow, there were children, there were people, some people were elderly, there were women, and so, and the warriors with him, of course, and his bodyguards. And they move away from the palace as fast as he could. Absalom, in the meanwhile, was mounting an army to invade the palace and kill everyone inside. It was a scary moment for David, very scary. So David is weeping, the people are weeping. Uh, David was, had, in fact, thrown dirt on himself. He took off his royal robes and he was just crying. 
And he says to himself, what, have I, what is happening to us? And he's just saying, God, please take care of us. Take care of these children. And, and he's just weeping that way. And there was a brook that was running alongside the path that he was on. And on the other side of the brook, there was a man. And uh, while David is running away, let's say running, he was trying his best at a fast pace to walk, this man across the brook by the name of Shimei starts cursing David, just curses him, throws stones at him, dirt and curses. And he does this for almost, it lasted maybe hours. This guy had an axe to grind. He was a Benjaminite of the lineage of Saul. And so he's just, he was just angry because Saul was no longer king. David is a king. You're getting what you deserve. And he's just throwing stones. And he's just alone. I mean, it's not an army. He's a man. And David wasn't saying a word. <laughs> not a word. He just lowered his head and he just kept weeping and walking. And all the people said, but why doesn't David do something? He's got all these warriors around him. So finally, one guy speaks up. And you read the story in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 9. Please read the entire chapter. It's fascinating. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? He's upset. He's angry. All the men were. Now let me go over, cut off his head, because what, was he, what the guy was doing was against the law. Right? And, uh, but the king said, what business of mine is yours, you sons of Zeruiah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who should say, why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, these were all bodyguards, powerful men, the Shirathites and the Perathites, powerful men. Behold, my son, who came out of my own body, he's referring to Solomon, uh, Absalom, sorry, seeks my life. How much more now this Benjaminite? Leave him alone and let him curse. For the Lord has told him, perhaps the Lord will look on my misery and return good to me instead of this cursing this day. And so David and his men went on the road and Shimei kept going on the hillside close beside him and as he went, he cursed and threw stones and dirt at him. Can you imagine that? And David said nothing. David had the resources, had the authority, was in his right. Go, get rid of him, come back. He had the warriors, beasts of men. David says, no. I can't blame Abishai. If I had been Abishai, a bodyguard, I would have done the same. I would have said, please, let me go. Let me get rid of this guy. He's a puny little ant. I'll kill him mercifully with one blow. This man, like I said, Shimei, had an axe to grind. And Shimei continued hurling insults and curses for quite a stretch. And the unusual thing in this scenario is David's response. David was surrounded by powerful men and he had every means to, this, to, to kill this man, this deranged man. That's what everybody saw him as. He's deranged. Why would he do this? Why would he threaten the king? Why would he think that he could do, go ahead and hurl insults and throw stones at the king? But David humbled himself under 
the mighty hand of God. Think about that. He humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. David did not take matters into his own hands. He did not see this evil as an independent act of a deranged man, but as an affliction that came from the hand of God. Now look at yourselves. Look at your place of work. Look at your home situation. Maybe a a difficult scenario with your own children, whatever it may be. And you're saying, I'm going to fix the situation. I'm going to make sure this doesn't continue anymore. David could have done that, but he humbled himself. See, do we see difficult situations and hardships as coming from the hand of God? That's what it means to understand the sovereignty of God. When we don't understand his sovereignty, we are fearful people. We think we have to control our situation. We have to make it as pleasant as possible. And any nuisance to our world any interruption, we need to get rid of it. That's what we think when we don't believe fully in God's sovereignty. David turned a situation that could have been in his favor, he turned it around and said, let God take care of this. He just took it and gave it over to God. Humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, you look at the life of Paul. Let's go to Paul for a moment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we read about his, the, the, the gifts that he had and all that he went through for the sake of the gospel. And, but then he speaks about a certain thorn and how he prayed three times to the Lord that the Lord would remove this thorn, this, this handicap, this difficulty that hindered him from serving the Lord effectively. Lord, I'm preaching the gospel. I need you to do this. I need you to remove this thorn from my life. What does the Lord say to him? Well, in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. I want this thorn to stay in your life. I want this handicap, this difficult hardship that you're dealing with, to remain. I'm not going to take it away from you, Paul. I'm going to give you grace to continue serving, to continue ministering, to continue writing. I'm going to give you grace as you endure this awful, belittling, and, and difficult thorn, I'm going to strengthen you. But I'm not removing the hardship. How many of us would re- receive that kind of answer? What did Paul do? He humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. He stopped praying about it. There are some of us who keep praying about the same thing over and over and over and over. As if God is going to change his mind. Makes no sense. We need to pray for those who are unsaved over and over and over. There's some things for godliness to grow in us over. Yes, yes, yes. But other situations, hardships, difficulty. There have been Christians praying for COVID and they've been cursing it and they've been prophesying. COVID is going to stop. It's going to stop dead in its Yeah, Yeah, sure it is. Of course. The arrogance. When Peter wrote these words to believers in Asia Minor, they were suffering as Christians. They were having a hard time. So what does Peter say to them? Not only clothe yourselves with humility toward each other. In other words, go out of your way and serve each other. Take your gifts, take your resources, take what you have, and make them them available for others. 
It's not your car. It's God's car. It's not your house. It's God's house. It's not your money. It's God's money. That's the Christian's view, worldview. So therefore, I'm a steward of these things. I will use them for the others. I will bless others. It's not my gift. It's not my intelligence. It's not my uh, whatever, whatever possessions I have. It's, these are God's, and therefore God has given them to me as a steward, and therefore I will bless others. That's what it means to be clothed with humility toward each other. Not only said that, but then he goes on to say, I want you to humble yourselves. Don't fight the environment in which you live. Don't be angry. Don't complain about Caesar, about the fact that you are living a very difficult time and you're being maligned and you're being ridiculed and maybe you've lost a job, maybe you've lost a promotion, maybe you've lost your land, whatever it is, humble yourselves. If David, who had authority, could have resolved this situation and chose to humble himself, how much more we as Christians who know Christ, who is the one who humbled himself to the point of dying on the cross. Certainly we can humble ourselves. Peter says, if you don't humble yourselves, God will oppose you. He will. But if you humble yourself, here's the promise, and it's so wonderful, he will exalt you, verse 7, in due time. He doesn't exalt you out of the way. He lets you go through that humbling experience. He waits for you to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the end he can reward you. Look at Joseph. He humbled himself under the mighty hand of God throughout that process and then God honored him. Job humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. Who would have expected all that pain? For what reason? It's not given. But he humbled himself and at the end God exalts him. You see, when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, God will exalt us. But when we fight and complain and doubt and we, and we become angry, I'm angry with God, angry with others, and we don't understand what's going on, instead of humbling ourselves, the problem is our pride. Our pride is skewing our perspective. So we don't see things as they should be seen. We should not see them through divine lenses but we're seeing them myopically through our own lenses. We're not using the wide-angle lens. We're using the narrow lens. And we see things, oh my goodness, look at this problem. This problem is in my life. This guy's a nuisance. He's he's a real difficulty at my place of work. My boss, I can't stand him. And and we're just looking myopically at that problem instead of humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We humble ourselves when we acknowledge our sin We humble ourselves when we amend our steps and we humble ourselves when we accept with humility and gratitude our situation. That doesn't mean we can't cry. David cried. David wept. But David said, I can handle this or I can let God, my God, handle it. And that's what Peter is saying to the saints of his day. And that's what God's word is telling us. You may have heard about the increase in cases in Europe with the COVID cases and, and what the news we're hearing can be troubling. And so those of us who are constantly watching or following media and news and whether it be on our devices or on TV can be troubled by these news and we say, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, what is happening? Oh my goodness. And we're li- don't live in fear. Don't be angry. 
And please do not prophesy or against the virus. It is God's doing. We need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. It's only when we do so that God is free to exalt us. Now look at Saul's life. You can read that on your own. King Saul, the first king of Israel. That man never humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. Never. And so what do we see? That God opposes Saul over and over till the very last. God opposes him. God is never, ever bending before man who is proud. God doesn't have to bend before us either. But he's such a humble God, he looks for humility. He rewards those who humble themselves under his mighty hand. If you don't humble yourself today, God will oppose you today, and he will humble you tomorrow when you meet him face to face. For every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We might as well do it today and enjoy his favor. What an amazing God that he should do this, that he would reward humility. Oh, that the Lord may give us grace to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is so vast. There is no way we can understand this precious book that contains your counsel, your mind, your will to the fullest. But for those nuggets of gold that we're able to uh, mine from this book, for those wonderful truths that we glean from the Bible, we're so thankful. For they change our lives, they impact us. And your people have come here today not to listen to my words, but to listen to your word. And thank you for their eagerness, their hungry hearts, and the minds that you've given them to receive the counsel of the Almighty. I pray that indeed the meditations of our heart as we leave this place will continue to be pleasing to you, and that the words of our mouth would be acceptable to you as we encourage one another and minister one to another. Thank you for the joy of being together in your presence. What an honor, what a privilege. One day when we are going to be together in your presence, we're going to look back at these moments and realize how impactful they have been, how blessed we were to be so anointed with joy. Oh, Father, teach us to constantly humble ourselves under the mighty hand of our Lord so that indeed we could find the reward that you have in store for your people awaiting us. And this we pray in the wonderful and glorious name of our Savior. Amen and amen.